age futurism to me, I mean, I spent a whole career in gerontology and a whole career where we're reactive. We're just reactive all the time. Instead of spending our time and resources being proactive, how do we not have a future where people have to be in nursing homes? And so that, I think, is also an opportunity for people to come together and say, well, what could we imagine together in the spirit of equity and humanization and liberation? At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of at Home On Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home On Air. Welcome to another episode of At Home On Air, conversations that matter for the quality of the experience of later life. I am Susie Stadler. I'm an architect and also have the pleasure of being the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, the learning community on aging and the producer of this program. Our guests are Norma Thomas and Raina Leon, a mother and daughter team, and as I have learned, lifelong collaborators. Welcome to both of you, and thank you so much for joining us to talk about how Afro and age futurism might help us to imagine a better future for all elders. Before we start, I wanted to remind everyone of our format. We'll talk for about 30 minutes, and then we'll open up the conversation for audience Q&A. Thank you again, Raina and Norma, for joining us. Raina is an educator, writer, emerging visual artist, and much, much more. And Dr. Norma Thomas has been a dedicated social worker and leader in the field of gerontology for over 40 years. So we have two mighty people in the room. What's interesting to me and what's wonderful is there is so much effort today to connect generations for a better future. And the two of you have done this for a long, long time. So thank you for demonstrating this intergenerational successful collaboration to us. So let's jump into the questions. Reina, I have learned that you are a Trekkie and you love science fiction. And science fiction sometimes predicts a way of living. Is your love for science fiction linked to the vision of Afro and age futurism, which you and Norma have laid out? And if yes, tell us a little more about this. In answer to your question, my mom was the person that actually introduced me to sci-fi in literature and television. So I grew up watching the original Star Trek on the reruns and imagining that future, which is actually not so, so distant. And of course, the only Black character was Uhura. But brilliant character, right? Who is a communication specialist, someone who is bringing cultures together and without her, nothing actually would happen without like devastating war. She brings it together. As far as representations of Blackness within that 
world, but also within science fiction, there weren't many. It wasn't actually until I encountered the work of Octavia Butler that I started to be like, oh, well, um, thinking about the connection with Afrofuturism in particular. But science fiction, speculative fiction more generally, allows us to also explore social ills. And that's one of the things that I think is one of the great cores is that the challenges of today, the present moment, they exist in the future. It's just enabled by technology, right? And so part of the work of science fiction is to engage in that and say, well, what's going to change in this? My mom has also introduced me to like outer limits and those kind of things too. All of that comes into conceptualizing what the future and what the present leading into the future should hold for intergenerational conversations, the conversations that my mom and I have all the time and what we imagine together for what that intergenerational landscape looks like. Bill Hooks tells us about Marcus Center theory, where we're thinking about those who have been historically marginalized and how can those folks be actually centered in our needs, whether around those who are of different generations or ethnicity or ability, whatever it is. And for me, that connects to a real concern stemming from philosophy. How can the technology, how can the advances, how can the things that we don't even know that we have yet support that centering, that recentering? So yeah, in answer to your question, yes. <laughs> Science fiction definitely influences the visioning that we have. You wrote this article, you two together, and when I first read it, it piqued my curiosity because I was curious, what is this connection between Afrofuturism and age futurism? As I went deeper into the article, I understood it more and more in Afrofuturism which visualizes a future where people of African descent are liberated fully and integrally as part of society with full equity. What does this concept, the concept of full equity and fully liberated and an integral part of society, how does this sort of help us and translate into the concept of age futurism? When I was first reading about Afrofuturism, I think age futurism instantly popped into my head. It's more than the technology. It is essentially just imagining a future that becomes what you want it to be. And so the Afrofuturists started to do this looking at science fiction, but I've read articles that People consider the Underground Railroad, for example, an example of Afrofuturism. There were people who took the technology of the day and looked at it in terms of liberation and freedom. And so they imagine a world where people were free, but using the technology of the day to imagine that. Age futurism to me, I mean, I spent a whole career in gerontology and a whole career where we're reactive. We're just reactive all the time. Instead of spending our time and resources being proactive, we have people who need services. So how do we get them services? How do we not have a future where people have to be in nursing homes? How do we have a future that a nursing home, and there's been some attempts to do this, that they are homes and not sterile places, that they are really homes where people get the services they need. 
how do we envision a future where if you need services, you get 100% of them in your house and you don't have to go anywhere if you don't want to? I mean, again, I've spent a whole career being reactive to long-term care needs of older people versus being proactive about how do we prevent all of this and how do we fully integrate people in society and that folks are not segregated. Even in some ways, a senior center is segregated. A nursing home is segregated. Why are we not thinking about how the entire generations are integrated together and that older people have a huge value regardless of their abilities? How can we imagine this? And if we could imagine it, then it can happen. It's when we can't imagine it that it does not happen. And what happens now is what happened. When Rain and I were writing the article for Generations initially, it wasn't tied to Afrofuturism, but it very quickly became age futurism and thinking about just a whole different way of conceptualizing our aging. I ran a nonprofit for 13 years called the Center on Ethnic and Minority Aging. And I was just going back through all that stuff. It was a whole experience of age futurism. We said we want to ensure that we better serve ethnic minority elders. And we're angry that it wasn't being done. So we did it. (laughs) And you could only do that if you could imagine that things could change. I never thought of it in that way until I read all the incredible work we did for 13 years. And then I realized that was Afrofuturism, that was age futurism, that was multicultural futurism in practice. And that group wants to revise it again. I just wanted to add into the conversation too around Afrofuturism and age futurism as both holding the humanity of people. Oftentimes our elders are treated as if their humanity slips away with age for some reason and are kind of pushed away, pushed away, pushed away and silenced in so many different ways. And yet what we've learned, or I hope that we have learned in the pandemic with the loss of so many of our elders is a disorientation that happens within our world when we are not taking into account and holding as important and central parts of our communities, those who are elders, those who have a lot of stories to share, right? And I think that age futurism, Afrofuturism engages ultimately with questions of freedom and justice and humanity. Like I see you, what is the worldview that you are carrying within your being as a representation and connection to your culture? How can these services and this community be wound up in support of that wholeness. And so when we were even conceptualizing, well, what does this look like in practice? Well, yeah, it looks like perhaps interviews with our elders that are now an augmented reality. It looks like connecting with schools so that schools go around the neighborhood and talk with their elders about like, oh, do you remember what was on that corner over there or that corner over there? It's not just the bells and whistles. It also is creating a particular community structure that doesn't segment, that actually allows for more circling and interconnectedness and intergenerational work. I mean, it also seems to me from what you just said is that it's also a passing on of traditions. And that's super complicated, right? Like, especially drawing from Afrofuturism, thinking about the legacy of slavery and folks who identify as African-American, 
having that wall, the wall of perhaps getting as far as your grandparents or your great grandparents and actually not being able to push back any further than that. And the liberation and brilliant practices of those who struggle to survive so that we in this time can dream and do and relax and have naps, all the things that they were not able to do because of their bondage. The brilliance of their technology was to also create networks of kinship that defied just blood relationships. And I think that even that is uh, wisdom to take from Afrofuturism as well as the history that informs it for the future, that our networks do not have to just be bound by kin, actually, like blood relation, but thinking about how are we dependent upon one another? We all are, whether in our neighborhoods or globally. We know that right now, especially with the war that's happening geopolitical issues. We know the impact on inflation, on food prices and all sorts of things. And we know that very locally too, you know, the effect of morale when the pandemic was just beginning and folks are singing from their doorsteps, at least that was in my neighborhood, you know, that keeps up the morale when your next door neighbor, like every week on Wednesday at four o'clock, everybody's singing from their porch, right? Like that connectedness and commitment to, yes, it is a hard time and we will get through together. In your Article, you talk about the reverence we bestow mm. on ancestors who have passed, but that we often deny this reverence to elders who are still part of the community. I would love to ask you both from your different perspectives and also the phase of life you are in. Why do you think this is how we can shift this way of thinking and maybe also how you experienced this and have experienced this in your work? Well, we live in historically in a youth-oriented culture. So it's youth, youth, youth in the value of new, new, new and new ideas, but everything old is new again. And so there are very few real new ideas under the sun. So we should value the wisdom and the ideas because we also treat elders as though they have no new ideas. Mm. We have to realize that older people have lived through such technological change in their lifetime and been able to adapt to all of it. And so why could they not invent <laughs> new things? And why could they not adapt to new things? We have a great reverence for our ancestors, at least in the African-American tradition. We do all kinds of ancestor veneration, but We need to give that same credence to what we called in our article, the walking ancestors, the people who are still around, who teach us every day. I was at a rites of passage ceremony yesterday. The keynote speaker was 90 years old and he imparted great wisdom to us in his 90 year old keynote address. He has now written his third book at my urging because I told him if he didn't write a book about his life, I would talk about him after he left the earth. He is now on his third and he's writing an essay. So there is so much to learn from our elders. And even I sometimes have felt like maybe I should not get involved in new stuff. I mean, I'm 69, let the young people do it. And then I realize that is such foolishness because <laughs> I still have one, a lot to offer to 
you know, people can benefit from what I have to say. And three, there's just new ideas that I have every day. It's good to pass on that legacy to other people. Our elders have so much to give. A meeting that we had at the Center on Ethnic and Minority Aging, one of the members brought their mother. And their mother clearly has had severe bouts of dementia. And she started talking in the meeting as we were trying to come up with an idea for our conference. We couldn't come up with an idea to save our lives. And she started talking and she's talking and she's talking. And the more she talked, the more we started writing. And I said, I think we just came up with the theme for our conference. Because what she said was she was a retired nurse. And it just hit home. It was like, well, bring her to the meetings because we need, we need her. You know, it took a while to get to that point, but she had a point to make and she made it in her own way. And we had the theme for our conference. So everybody has something to offer. We should not segregate people anywhere. I was thinking in terms of older people, if we want to change neighborhoods, for example, that are not as good as they used to be. At one time, there were people who lived in those neighborhoods who could tell us about the businesses and the buildings and the people and the vibrancy of the neighborhood. Well, if it was that way before, why can't it be that way again? We just have to be able to envision it. And there are people who have the knowledge that could give us the vision to in fact make it better. And if not just like it used to be, better than it used to be, because they can give us the vision that we might not be able to see. They carry the understanding of the past to have the vision. Especially thinking about the breathing ancestor, the walking ancestor. It's like, oh, a walking ancestor might be kind of ableist, actually. And perhaps our thinking should be more expanded into thinking like, what is the unit that is the bridging connector, perhaps the breath. But the concept came from Alexis Pauline, who in one of her tech lessons on fugitivity, where she talked about that and the idea of the walking ancestor. When I read this idea, I was like, oh, it's just changed everything. What changes in us all when we start to think about our actions, every engagement, every connection, every interaction? as something that is building a legacy, that right now you are a walking ancestor, you are a breathing ancestor. For me, that changed my thinking about what I want my legacy to be. I think that part of the challenge is that folks are caught up in the movements of their lives and get so focused on that. It's not until perhaps you might be doing genealogical research or archival research or something like that. And you start to think about legacy. You start to think about generational gifts and wisdom, trauma as well, but generational joy and resilience, all these things that you've inherited from the past. But you're thinking about what you inherited from the past rather than like, I am in this moment scripting, I am inscribing on the future, some influence. What do you want to be an ancestor of? Do you want to be an ancestor of pain? Do you want to be an ancestor of the worst food ever? Do you want to be an ancestor of foul conversations? Do you want to be an ancestor of drama? 
I want to be an ancestor of joy and connection and healing and innovation and hybridity and experimentation and play. Like that's the kind of ancestor I want to be. And so if I want to be that kind of ancestor, I got to be that right now. And when thinking about communities, right? A few years back when my husband and I were looking at houses, the house that we ended up getting had three steps to get into it. And I was like, yo, Mateo, I don't know about this house. It's got these three stairs getting into it. And he was like, right now, Stairs are not a challenge and it's just fine. Like <laughs> if we have to, we could put a ramp this way. And I'm like, yo, my whole life, I've been around gerontologists. I have been <laughs> thinking about elder issues and aging in place my whole life. So like, don't judge me for thinking about that. When we even got our house, our real estate agent did not understand why we were really looking for a place that had ease of public transportation, that we didn't have to drive everywhere, that had a library nearby, that we could walk to the supermarket, that had people that would actually walk a lot, that had light, that had the ability to grow food. All of these things that we could continue to keep active with within our home and our environs. She just didn't understand. She was like, oh, you can get a house in the Oakland Hills over here for that same amount, but like huge. I'm like, yeah, but we'll have to drive everywhere. Right now we can walk, we can go to the cafe and so on. So neighborhoods that actually have those things that age futurism allows for, where everyone can really enjoy and be supported in their full human experience. But our structures are such that that's actually not a priority even in one's thinking oftentimes. And it's like, okay, you just go live in the comfort of this particular community. But once you get to a certain point, there's another space for you. Whereas perhaps our communities would be better served by actually investigating and interrogating and doing some redesign, some urban planning kind of redesign to be restructured. Hey, gas prices are really expensive right now. Maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time. It's so interesting that you created this bridge to homes and housing in neighborhoods. May 26th, we have an environmental geographer who does exactly this. She's studying neighborhoods and interviewing people in neighborhoods mm -hmm. to figure out what are age-friendly environments and what are environments that enable people to continue living there. Like you just said, it's not just the home, it's the closeness to transportation, etc. It's also, you know, the coffee shop around the corner. People can sit forever and talk mm -hmm. or the little bakery where people recognize you when you walk in. I think this awareness and what you just said is imminently important for both Afrofuturism and age-futurism in terms of giving people the agency and the choice to live how they want to live at any stage. The example of the real estate agent who was completely oblivious to this, this kind of thinking is just hurting us all in a way. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of work to do in changing this. And I'm curious, both of you, Reina and Norma, how also technology listening and recording with the means we have right now, if there's a way to influence this kind of thinking and shift it. Well, Reina's the technical guru person. So I'll let her talk more about the technology. Listening is incredibly important. We just spent a week listening to stories in the South Carolina region doing genealogy on my mother's side of the family. And the stories were 
incredible and overwhelming and you know traumatic but joyful and filling in gaps that we we never would have been able to fill had we not gone to interview people in person and to spend the time to listen to people and each story built upon the next so each story filled in a little piece of the gap so listening is incredible listening to people's stories. I used to say back to people who have cognitive differences that sometimes, especially when I was in direct practice, you would get a client and they would tell you the same story over and over. You've Mm. had parents or friends, they tell you the same story over and over and over again. And if you don't listen, you can't turn that off because you say, I heard this before. I realized that Sometimes the reason people are telling you the same story over and over again is that they're trying to tell you something that you need to hear (laughs) and you're just not hearing them. And so they keep telling you the same story over and over until you have the aha moment that you actually hear them. Or as clinicians, if we turn off the stories we've heard over and over again, we're gonna miss vital pieces of information that are so impactful for the health and welfare of the clients that we're serving. So listening is incredible, but also preserving many of those stories for the future. I mean, I can push a button to record, but Raina has some program that actually transcribes what the people say. And so you have the transcription where you don't have to sit there and try to transcribe it there are programs that do that for you. And then you can archive this for posterity. But Raina, you can talk more about the technology that's out there because you talked about some of it in the article. By the way, we are doing this here. We have an automatic program that records the transcription, which is pretty, pretty amazing and helps us a lot. Raina, I'm also thinking about your work as a digital archivist and your StoryJoy project in the context of that. As Mommy was saying around recording and listening to the stories that have been repeated many times and finding a different truth or being able to hear it for the first time, even though you've technically heard it many times, but like really listening. One thing that we had talked about was what are the resources within augmented or virtual reality now that might actually allow for the recording of these kind of stories and the mapping out in a virtual landscape for those folks who are experiencing cognitive impairment and how the story has more and more gaps over time. What would that experience be for that person to perhaps as part of their continuing support services to be immersed within their own memories and perhaps immersed within their memories with someone else to ask questions like a grandchild. It might be helpful for that person in recounting specific things Even in the loss of the details, being able to be like, I feel like I belong in this memory. I feel like this is mine. Something for a scholar to look at, perhaps a technologist to invent. But I wonder about the use of augmented reality. I've mentioned that before, the ability to take a small recording, like a regular video recording, and by just having a picture or a QR code that someone uses their phone to access, all of a sudden, that person is right there. And perhaps that person is no longer with us in this reality anymore. But them talking about the neighborhood, them talking about how much they love the people within that neighborhood, 
there's research that speaks to the great disorientation that young people experience when they don't have connections with their elders. And sometimes that has devastating mental health effects. What would it be for youth of today who are feeling disoriented, not connected, rooted, to actually have the images of their elders of today, of yesterday and so on, those images saying, I love you, I care about you, I may not be here, but I love you and I care about you and this is the wisdom I have to give to you. How loving that might be, what a gift that might be for young people. Raina had me last year in the winter walking around my original community on the east end of town <laughs> with people going by wondering what the heck are they doing out there with the film stuff. And we're going to places in the local community that have significance and I'm giving the history when we can get back when it's not so cold and finish that tour. The goal is that you could do a QR code and I will pop up somewhere and then I will tell you about the history of this church or I will tell you about the history of this playground or the history of this funeral home in this African-American community where I'm from. And I just keep remembering people going by saying, okay, what is Dr. Thomas doing now and her daughter? She's got her out here in the street doing something with a film. The technology is there. Like even just a year ago, the technology was super clunky. It was very, very complicated and time consuming to do that. Now, Black Terminus is one app where it's Like I can do all of that within 20 minutes. The technology is finally catching up. The limitation now is only our imagination. And so that I think is also an opportunity for people to come together and say, well, what could we imagine together in the spirit of equity and humanization and liberation? Okay, we have a technologist within our community. How could technology help us to actually put that into effect right now? We don't have to wait a hundred years for that. I think that's just such a great vision. In a way, the technologist becomes this very humanistic person who actually can help fulfill the way of a historian or helps everybody to become a historian, which is a pretty fascinating view. Accepting this, like you said, there is no limit to imagination and it sort of democratizes power. That's very cool. What, what was the name of the app, Reina? The app that I really like is called Black Terminus, and it's very focused on the Black community and preserving history using augmented reality. And so for those who are interested, check it out. It's super easy. You just have to have a video and a picture, and they link it together. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Some questions are about living in community versus moving in later life. Betty says... Why do some choose to go to assisted living facility? They're feeling isolated and living alone. 
in the home? Is this the main motivation for people? Is there a different way? Is there a way to not need assisted living anymore? Sometimes the world as it exists in many of our communities right now, there may not be any other option for an individual. So again, what could we imagine the future to look like that there are other options? That if someone chooses that they want to be in an assisted living facility, that's their choice. But they had other options if everything they needed was available, or even if the assisted living facility was still connected to the community. Someone needs assistance, but they're not still isolated from the community that's around them. And so they're still considered an integral part of the community. If they can't get out, the community's coming to them. Can we use technology? I mean, now with Zoom and all of these things that we've become accustomed to, and many of our older adults are accustomed to it as well. If they don't know how to get on it, somebody can help them. I mean, we have conversations where our much older members are getting on. Their children are in the background. <laughs> getting them on. So we see the kids and they say hi, but you know, they can use the technology. We have to imagine a future that even if you need a lot of care, that you're still not cut off. You're still not in this place where very few people come to see you, that now people kind of forget that you're even around or that you have a contribution to make because all those folks who are in those facilities have contributions to make. And that's what we often forget, that they have viable ways to still contribute and be a benefit to all of us. But what happens is people go into a nursing home, they go into a facility, and except for you know their relatives, who hopefully are still visiting, they're not seeing other people. And so you don't get intellectually stimulated. You don't feel like you have anything to contribute. And truthfully, we all have something to contribute until we're looking up at sky and not ground, until we are no longer here. And if we've done things right, even when we're gone, we have stuff to contribute. I mean, I hope my mind lives on after I'm gone. <laughs> Years ago, when I was in college, I had to stream for a school. And the school was such that part of the school was for elementary school kids, but half of the school was actually devoted to elders for a senior center, assistive care, apartments, with the idea that folks who had been former educators, community members who want to continue to be invested in the community, and this is the best option for them for their support, could also still be integral members of the community by being mentors, by sharing their stories with young people. However, folks like be involved, maybe leading a lesson every now and then, or teaching folks how to knit, <laughs> or teaching someone about a particular period of history that they lived through. And that's so weird, right? Like, have you ever heard of a school like that? Nah, it doesn't exist. But why doesn't it? Why isn't there that interconnection where folks across all sorts of backgrounds and ages and abilities and so on are in the same building all the time, sharing knowledge together. I think that that's also what age futurism allows for, that visioning. Assistive care living could be an integral part of that community. Yes, I totally agree. 
my architecture thesis was called At Home Was Growing Old. And I envisioned actually, like you just said, elders live in buildings where the world comes to them. You know, some elders who are a sports fan, their apartments close to a soccer stadium. Or people who are music fans, there's integrated buildings, part of all the civic amenities which we have it's a vision who knows you know if this will ever happen but as you both say it's worth having the vision and working towards it when we talked about what kind of ancestors we want to be Medina said I want to be the ancestor watching over the children which is a lovely lovely vision in terms of recording stories and listening to the voices of elders Betty brought up a new project here in San Francisco, which is called 80 over 80. The storytelling project with elders in their 80s, which just got started. And I might also mention in this context that we have a teaching on aging, which is in person, but will be recorded on June 4th. It's all about sharing wisdom. It's called Elder Wisdom and overlooked resource in trying times. It's about figuring out how to bridge elder wisdom with bright young minds. Norma, you said earlier that we always have something to share and to contribute. Many elders sort of lose the confidence to do that and don't see their value anymore. I think that's the beauty in giving them the title ancestor. While we are still amongst you, to have the title ancestor seems like a title which bestows real value on this contribution. And Reina shared that you have some friends who are constructing their own community to be a community of friends. Some friends in the Bay Area who themselves are in their 50s, do not have children, and want to age in place with others who eventually they would also like to have some beers with every now and then, right? So what they've decided is to buy land in the Bay Area and do some container housing building, which are beautiful. Some of the companies are creating some very modern homes. And what they're finding is that it's actually far more affordable and attainable and a possibility to share and split land between, you know, friends and close family members to age in place together. There are more and more articles as well about that commitment, sometimes with folks who are sharing caregiving responsibilities for children, but also increasingly for folks who are sharing caregiving responsibilities for an elder within their community or thinking about intergenerational communities and being very intentional. I think that's one thing, again, we've learned some lessons or some have learned some lessons through the pandemic around interdependence and trying to create those places for flourishing. Should anything emerge again, folks don't want to be isolated in the same way. And so creating a community where you have like-minded folks, where you have your own spaces, and yet you also have a shared commitment to one another can defeat that potential isolation. Yes, and my wish would be that every city facilitates this building and permitting department and becomes a resource and not an obstacle course. Auntie Louise says, this concept is so important. I am excited this team is speaking on it putting it out in the air. Question, thoughts on how futurism becomes policy and it can impact our society. That's always difficult because you have to change hearts and minds. Again, we are very used to being reactive and a lot of our money is in reaction, even though being upfront and prevention is cheaper. 
it's just cheaper than to wait till we have the crisis and we have to respond to and are reactive. So it is starting the conversation because, you know, revolutions do happen, but change tends to be incremental. And so it is putting the ideas out there, but talking to some people who are at least open-minded enough to start thinking about doing things in a different way. People who have some resources who might want to try some experiments to see what it would look like if we did storytelling with a group of older adults, or if we did some intergenerational programming, or if we did something that is very different that maybe is not currently funded by the Older Americans Act or some of these other programs, but might take not as much resources as people would think, and to be open-minded to doing that. I mean, Raina and I talked a lot about how can we do some intergenerational things? Where would we get the resources to do it? Technology makes some of these things easier to think about. But again, it is longer term. It is changing hearts and minds. But the only way to do that is to envision that it could happen and do it. I can remember, Lois, when we tried to change hearts and minds about serving minority elders and hit roadblocks all over the place. And then said, okay, we'll just start our own organization. I don't think we knew what that meant. (laughs) We didn't have any money, but we ran an organization where we changed hearts and minds. And people said to us, when you were on the inside, we didn't have to listen to you. But when you were on the outside, we had to listen to you. And so sometimes it is putting stuff out in the air and talking difference until somebody will listen to you. And then, you know, you don't always do stuff through the policymakers. You do stuff around the policymakers. And I'm also in the space of like, oh, maybe we should have a policy brief and be educating our policymakers. Or maybe we should enlist those within our networks to say, hey, you want to run a campaign? You want to be on that council? Like, because that's how policy also changes, partnering with folks who can support the changes in policy that allow for permitting and all those things. Perhaps it's teach-ins with those policy folks, inviting them to be invested in conversations and then following up with like, okay, so what are our next steps? How do we enact some actual change here and perhaps even writing the legislation for them and saying, here, I wrote for you. You just have to see if it works for you, if you'll approve there. So there are strategies for supporting folks and being in connection and building with folks. And perhaps some of that might help. I've always been of the mind that if things are standing in your way, you figure out a way to go around them. That is true. I've done that more times than I can think about. You're a team player until you're not. And then you convince people to get on your team. And you do it with strategy and love and convincing and all kinds of ways. But you try to work with those who are the policymakers and people who have the resources and hopefully bring them to the table. But change tends to be more incremental than revolutionary. We want it all to happen tomorrow, but sometimes we have to be in it for the long haul, too. And again, we're in a system, uh, a national system that is much more reactive than it is proactive. And we have to change people's thinking to think proactively. How do we prevent things? 
how do we make things such that older adults have the utmost quality of living that we all strive for versus reacting to when things go bad and we have to do something. So it's a long term, but again, you can only change it if you can dream it. Yes, I always feel it's better doing something than nothing. What you just gave us, Norma, is sort of the recipe for being an activist. And I think that's what we're all called to be in small and big ways. I always say, if you can't change the world, change where you sit. <laughs> you can change what's around you. If you can't change the whole world, you can do something. Yes. Don't ever think you, you can't do anything. You can do something. Raina just gave us a great quote to end this conversation and to go out into the world by Ursula Le Guin, a wonderful science fiction writer. Mm -hmm. You cannot buy the revolution. You cannot make the revolution. You can only be the revolution. It is in your spirit or it is nowhere. Thank you all for joining Raina and Norma. I really love what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.